Streaming May 23rd only on BET Plus. Miss Pat is back. I'm excited. <laughs> and it's time for some grown ass family time. I am a man. Oh, you a man? That's right. Then take my clothes off. You ain't pay for none of that on your back. Dad, you can't ignore your mother forever. I've tried. Would you like me to backhand you again? The Miss Pat Show. Streaming May 23rd on BET Plus. To sign up and learn more, visit BET.plus. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I say with Ashley Ray, another episode, another episode of TV. Hello, TV I say listeners, TV Club. Oh, I, I'm really excited for today's episode. It is kind of a special episode. It's a showrunner extravaganza. <laughs> extravaganza. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I'm a TV nerd. I like to talk to the people behind shows. And today I have Joanna Johnson of Good Trouble on Freeform and Will Graham of A League of Their Own on Prime Video. You know, you hear, you hear so much from actors anyway. You, I, I have so many actors. You hear so much from actors. Okay. Showrunners run the writer's room. They work with the network. They manage everything from beginning to end. You know, they're an important part of the TV process. Okay. So if you're, if you're in TV club, you, you probably already have a favorite showrunner. You know, that name that comes up in the credits, you're like, Oh, I love what they do. So today I am celebrating showrunners. And you know, today also, it's going to be a deep dive because we're we're going in with two iconic queer showrunners who create fearless television that connects generations. First, we're going to talk to Joanna Johnson from Freeform's Good Trouble. In 2013, Johnson created The Fosters, which was the first TV show to feature a foster family led by a lesbian couple. I know I sound like Billy Eichner with that many, you know, definers on it, but it is the first TV show to feature a foster family led by a lesbian couple. And it was historic. You know, it got a lot of attention at the time. Uh, That show would eventually spin off into Good Trouble, which is honestly, it's like my weighted blanket TV show. Like if you were a fan of the bold type, uh, Good Trouble is a show you should put on your list. But every week, Good Trouble addresses contemporary political, gender, and class conflicts in Los Angeles amongst this group of very cool 20-somethings, you know, diverse group of kids. Then we're going to talk to Will Graham, co-showrunner and co-creator of Prime Video's A League of Their Own. Will joins us to talk about the process of putting together a show that had, you know, this challenge of engaging modern audiences while staying true to the realities of the past. I talked about A League of Their Own a few weeks ago. Obviously, I'm obsessed. Will and I really get into it. We get into this show. If you had any questions, I am sure we answered in this conversation. So you're going to want to (laughs) listen. But queer writers and queer showrunners, they face censorship and bias throughout Hollywood's history. And Joanna and Will are two showrunners who have figured out a way to navigate those obstacles without losing their message. So we're going to have Joanna Johnson from Good Trouble. My guest for the watch list is Joanna Johnson, the only showrunner and co-creator <laughs> of Good Trouble on Freeform, which just aired its finale. You can watch the entire season on Hulu. I absolutely love this show. It takes on modern topics. It's a spinoff of The Fosters, if you were obsessed with that show like I was when I was younger. Uh, but it looks at Callie and Mariana Foster and their transition to L.A., Uh, as someone who moved to LA kind of around the same time as the show. It deals with a lot of the topics I deal with when it comes to homelessness, uh, gender, sexuality. Uh, It's amazing. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you started your career as an actress. Did you always want to go into television? Did you, you know, see your career going this way? Well, I went to film school and I, I thought that I wanted to write and direct. And then I realized when I was at film school that I didn't know anything about acting and they didn't really teach you 
much about acting, at least in film school when I was in there in film school. And so I took an acting class outside of school and I got kind of hooked on that. And what I realized is I, I probably always wanted to act on some level, but ultimately I think what drove me to act was probably more of wanting to feel special and wanting to feel like I was somebody. And it came out of a lot of probably insecurity. And as I got older and I didn't really need that as much, I didn't find the acting to be quite as fulfilling as I did writing and creating and being behind the scenes. And also to be in front of the camera is really painful. It's really hard. You know, you're always judging yourself and it was tough. And I realized at one point, I'm not going to be a movie star, so I better figure something out. And I'd always written, I always loved writing. So I just really took that seriously and actually quit the soap I was on. I was on a soap opera. The Bold and the Beautiful, my... (laughs) My mom and my grandma are big fans, by the way. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I quit so that I would be scared enough to really write. I love that, that you just said, get rid of the safety net. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, because I, I kind of fear is a real motivating factor for me. It works really well. Yeah. And so uh, it's always good for me to have a little fear underneath or a deadline or something to, to get me going. We love to ask showrunners, were there any TV shows that inspired you growing up that you, you know, kind of dedicate maybe your your writing voice to that kind of taught you how to write? Yeah, you know, I grew up watching a lot of television. I think probably like a lot of kids in my generation. And like, I think I escaped into TV to, to deal with certain issues or, or just escape from my life. And early shows that really had an effect on me was like Star Trek had a big effect on me because... It was every episode was a morality play. And even a lot of the old movies I would just watch because, you know, in those days there weren't like a lot of channels. So you just, especially if you watch TV during the day, you just turn it on and there would be some old movie on there and I'd just watch it. And they all, in those days, they had some sort of moral lesson to them. And I really liked that. And then as I, you know, I loved Laverne and Shirley. I loved, I loved Sonny and Cher. I mean, I'm really dating myself. I loved Carol Burnett. I loved... Charlie's Angels. Um, you know, we didn't have cable then. So it was really, you know, basic television. Then I loved the X-Files as I got older. You know, I thought that was a wonderful show. I loved Friends. I loved Seinfeld. More sort of sort of recently was Breaking Bad, which I think everybody says is one of their favorite shows, but I thought that was oh, yeah. brilliantly done. And like recently I've been watching, I loved Dope Sick. I thought that was amazing. Oh yeah, Dope Sick that, was that so was, good was really great. And and then I'm just kind of watching. I mean, I w- try to watch a lot of things. I liked Gaslit and I liked Staircase. I oh. do like some true crime. Yeah, I, I love true crime. It's yeah. it's a bit of an obsession. Yeah. And the Staircase, I'd already seen the documentary and I still watch the show and learn new things. Me too. I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. I, there's a lot of wonderful television. This is another golden age of TV. I mean, you know, yeah. like Archie Bunker, you know, um, All in the Family, those shows too. I forgot about those. Mod. Those were amazing shows. Yeah. And that that were so, the Jeffersons, so brave. You couldn't do those shows today, probably. They tackled a lot of issues and not always in a pretty way. You know, you learned from the ugliness sometimes in those shows. Yeah, I I see some of the DNA of all of that in Good Trouble where you have these, you know, there's the female camaraderie of living together. There's also, you know, these badass women who aren't afraid to speak their minds, you know, and then you also take on issues and I, I would say you do take them on in a way that sometimes is maybe challenging the status quo. In that same issue where we talk about Alice, there's also, you know, you address TERFs. And it's in this way that is a little messy. It's like you you force them to make this decision of, do we just keep our mouths shut and we just keep working with this person or do we actually do something about it? I thought it was a really interesting and good way to bring up that subject. Thanks. And And also, the show is really funny. <laughs> I think a lot of times we think these, you know, shows that that talk about morals and important topics have to do it in a preachy way. And Good Trouble makes me laugh a lot, too. So ah, thank you so much. Yeah, I think when I went into this field, I felt like I wanted to try to in my own small way. And I don't think that I've changed hearts and minds globally in any way whatsoever. But even if there's just one person that watches a show and thinks, oh, gay people aren't aliens, they can be mothers or, you know, oh, well, that attitude about transgender people is really hurtful and wrong. And 
or just, you know, that, then I've, I feel like that it's important to me that the work has some element of that, but it has to be entertaining too. Yeah. But I think we do have responsibilities as storytellers to try to, you know, make the world a little bit better place if you can. And again, I know, I know that we're not reaching massive amounts of people or anything, but I just want to try to put something decent into the world. Yeah. Of course, I know there are people that think that my my views might be indecent, I suppose, but they probably don't watch the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know that they're Freeform's main audience, <laughs> uh, but I do yeah. think you know I I have nieces and nephews who are in that like seventeen nineteen age group who are coming of age, and they love the show and it it inspires them. They're kind of just like, wow, I never thought like I could go to a city and have this kind of impact or have this kind of job. So I think it's helpful in a world where kids are mostly inspired by like TikTok influencers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Uh, So I'm going to go through my watch list. Uh, This is where I just kind of choose my favorite five shows I've been watching. If you're watching any of them, join in. Let me know what you think. Yeah, great. Number one on the list is Reservation Dogs. Have you been checking that out on FX? I have to check it out. I'm dying to see it and I haven't. Yeah, it is incredible. This this latest season has just built upon the greatness of the first. And this newest episode is really centered around the older female characters. They have sort of a waiting to exhale moment. Oh. Uh, you know, yeah, it's kind of like their own mini girls trip episode. Uh, so if you haven't checked out the new season, dig into that. Up next, Only Murders in the Building. They just had the second season finale. I think Only Murders in the Building is really funny. The second season did kind of lose steam for me, but I thought it was great as a binge. So put it on the list. Watch it all at once later this year. I'm writing them down, actually. I am. These are my best recommendations. I think this is the, you know, the good stuff that's out right now. After you catch up on the latest season of Good Trouble, these are the (laughs) things you can put on your your list next. (laughs) Up next is Kevin Can F Himself on AMC+. It just returned with its second season with a two-episode premiere. If you're familiar with this one, it is about a woman who wants to kill her husband. I th- <laughs> This second season is going to be the last season, so the story is going to wrap up. The, the creators already decided they only wanted to do two, which makes sense to me. If you know the premise, it is that part of it is this dark, gritty, breaking badass show. But then when it talks to the husband, it switches to your traditional like audience sitcom with a laugh track. Oh. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. But slowly more characters break into this real world and leave this like safety of the sitcom behind. And that's what we're seeing the second season is more people being forced into the real world when they realize the horror of this woman wanting to kill her husband. Oh, cool. <laughs> really love what that one's doing. And then finally, House of Dragons. Did they pull you back in with this retelling of the Game of Thrones story? I did watch it. I watched the first episode. How did you feel about it? I felt... Like, it's just more of the same. Yeah. It's hard to reinvent it. I mean, how do you reinvent it? It just feels like it's going to be the same, you know, vying for power. Yeah. And they promised a a stronger female perspective. But in this premiere episode, it just felt like the same kind of violence against women. Uh, I'm curious, you know, as a female showrunner, how you feel about the, the creators kind of saying, well, you know, we have to show this. This is what it was like even though it's a fantasy show. <laughs> but, you know, them just kind of saying that's part of it, we have to include it. How do, you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I disagree with that. And I I understand what they're trying to, I understand what they're saying, but I also think we have responsibilities not to show things that can reinforce really dangerous and negative stereotypes. And violence is one of those. And I think gratuitous violence to say, well, we have to show it, especially against women. You don't really have to. I mean, we're not showing everything that was done. First of all, it's a make-believe time. Yeah. But I had the same thought when I was watching the new House of Dragons. You know, you're still seeing women treated badly and treated as whores and being used. And you see women, other women condoning that treatment of women you have the upper class women that are that are saved from that in a sense, but they don't seem to have an empathy for the other for other women who don't have means and money and status and not caring. I just don't know that we need to perpetuate that. In my in my own opinion, I just yeah. when you see that normalized on television, I think it's harmful, you know. And I think women are already abused enough, and yeah. we don't need to like glorify it in television. That's my own opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the, you know, forced birth scene in that first episode was so hard to watch. And 
has like mm-hmm. haunted me since I saw it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't know if I'll be sticking with the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah. That's how the original Game of Thrones, I had to stop watching it for, for a while because of the violence against women. And I eventually went back and just sort of, you know, fast forwarded through that to watch the show, but yeah. it, it really bothered me. With your show, there is, you know, this, this space where you could explore some forms of violence against women. Obviously, I like I'm a single young woman living in L.A. There's, you know, violence. I face the risk of sexual assaults. It's very easy to kind of grasp that that lens. Mm -hmm. But obviously, the show doesn't really do that. Was that what kind of decision went behind that when you were choosing sort of the tone and stories that you wanted to tell? Well, I just I didn't want to watch see women being victimized. I mean, one time I, I was at this thing. It was a it was something where they were giving awards to shows that had strong female characters or showed female empowerment. And so many of them had clips where the woman had been raped or was being raped or was fighting against that. And we actually won the award. And I, when I got up, I said, you know, I was just really struck and really disturbed by those clips that were chosen from these great shows. What they chose to put on is women being victimized and we're celebrating women here. And so I think there's so much unconscious bias that we all have that we we don't realize we have and we're promoting that. And this is women promoting this. And it was like, someone should have thought about this. So I think we have to question ourselves constantly because we are programmed a certain way. Yeah. But yeah, as women, we we can't go out in the world without at late at night or anytime without being afraid of assault. No one should have to live, grow up being told, be careful so you don't get raped or something. You know what yeah. I mean? Could you imagine like growing, you know, men don't really leave the house thinking better be careful. Yeah. And it's just not a way, it's not a way to live. So I, I would never want to put that on television. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's uh, an ethos the characters of Good Trouble would reject. So yeah. Are there any other shows you're watching? I always like to ask showrunners what they like to watch to relax. I know some people when oh. they're working on stuff and writing, they cannot watch other TV shows. And some people are like, oh, I just can only watch like reality trash. I like reality too, a little bit. I love to watch because I learn and I grow. And every time I'm watching a show, I'm thinking, oh, they did that really well. Or, you know, oh, that must have been hard for them to do. Or, you know, I see shots I love and I want to remember to do them. Um, I just finished watching Better Call Saul. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I loved Better Call Saul. I have to say this last season was meandering and um, to me unfocused. And I'm not quite sure why that was. So it was a little disappointing. Yeah. But I will say at the end, of, as much as you love the Breaking Bad character and you, you know, Walter White and you love Saul Goodman, those showrunners do believe that you have to pay for your crimes at the end. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, I, and I appreciate that. In a way, you want them to get away with it, but it's good that they're like, nope, they're not going to get away yeah, with it. No, you're not going to get away with it. I, I also found that it moved a little slow this season. I stopped watching and then let some episodes pile up so I could binge. And I felt that kind of helped. Yeah. I couldn't do the week to week this season. The other seasons were brilliant. Yeah. And and I just, I do love the show. And then I also watch Married at First Sight. Oh, I love Married at First Sight. Yeah. Because it's just really, it's really, it's just easy to watch. Yeah. Um, and I learn a lot. My wife gets mad at me that she's, why are you watching that? And I go, I, I learn a lot about relationships. Uh, the Boston season I thought was enlightening. So Yeah, you learn. And I also watch... The Bachelorette. I'm watching The Bachelorette. Oh, classic. You know, those classics. I don't know why I stick with that one. And then I like Gaslit. I don't think a lot of people watched it, but I thought that Julia Roberts did a great job. Yeah. Oh, I thought she was going to get a nomination. I thought that that Gaslit was going to blow up. I was kind of surprised that it kind of just came and went. But I guess there's so much TV right now. I was surprised too. Really surprised. And he was great. Sean Penn was unrecognizable in that character. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I thought everyone would talk about it and it, it got overshadowed yeah. by, uh, we crashed, I guess, uh, with, you know, that whole, yeah. thing, that whole show. Exactly. Yeah. I know. It's strange. But if you watch Good Trouble after this, you can watch all four seasons and you got picked up for a fifth season. It was announced recently. Uh, where do you want to see the story go in season five? Can we get any, any tips, any, any sneak peeks? I think I still, I want to continue, you know, exploring these characters and sort of kind of the the theme I'm thinking of this season is kind of lean on me. I always try to think of a, of a theme and just, I think we're in a time when people, we need each other, especially coming out of this pandemic. I think a lot of people are suffering and 
we need to lean on each other and remember that through our sharing our own humanity with each other, it lifts us all up. It really does. And if you're feeling blue one day, you know, when you're depressed, what you want to do is like isolate, but that's the worst thing you can do. What you need to do is call a friend. You need to call somebody. You need to get out in the world, go out, just go. If you have no one to call, go to the mall, walk around, see people, and that will lift you back up. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that message. Yeah. This whole podcast is encouraging you to watch TV, but do it with other people. Don't do it alone. <laughs> yeah. Do it with other people. Talk about yeah, it. Talk, talk about to your the friends shows. about it. Talk to your friends about yeah. whatever you're watching. Connect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Joanna. Uh, my pleasure, Ashley. Thank you so much for asking me. That was Joanna Johnson, showrunner for Good Trouble. One of my favorite comfort shows. Like I said, it has drama. It's entertaining, but it's also funny. It's everything I loved about The Bold Type, you know, shows like Younger, Gossip Girl. It's a good watch for a weekend. You're going to enjoy it. <laughs> but up next, you're not going to want to miss this. I am talking to Will Graham of A League of Their Own. And I know everyone is obsessed with this show. It is, it's the gay hit of the summer, okay? The fans, you're out there. You love it. You're intense. You're drawing pictures. You're writing fan fiction. They're even doing an event where actors from the show are going to read audience fan fiction. Like, that is great. You built a fan base real fast uh, with a league of their own. And I am part of it. I love the show. I talked about it a few weeks ago. And Will and I get into all of it. We are diving deep into the show. If you've had any questions, I promise you, you're going to get the answer from this interview. Will is amazing. He uh, started the Onion News Network, you know, and obviously the Onion is a big part of my history. So I'm really excited. I got to talk to him about his amazing work. So stick around. You're not going to want to miss it. TV, I say. Streaming May 23rd only on BET Plus. Miss Pack is back. I'm excited. <laughs> and it's time for some grown ass family time. I am a man. Oh, you a man? That's right. Then take my clothes off. You ain't pay for none of that on your back. Dad, you can't ignore your mother forever. I've tried. Would you like me to backhand you again? The Miss Pat Show. Streaming May 23rd on BET+. Plus. To sign up and learn more, visit BET.plus. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hey, Will, I'm so excited. Hey, it's so nice to meet you, and thank you for everything. Oh, thank you. You have an amazing voice. I'm sure that people <laughs> tell you that all the time, but I've been listening to some of your episodes since you started posting about the show. And by the way, I think you were like the first person to be like, hey, guys, like, uh, I like this show. Um, <laughs> and your voice is like, it's been like a, a very like, hectic couple of weeks, but your voice is very soothing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I had a radio show in college. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people have told me that. So college, <laughs> college radio. Yeah. You know, that, that just cool. Hey, brought to you today. Bye. <laughs> I had a funny experience where um, I'm friends with, do you know who Kristen Shaw is? Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's awesome. And we were at a party with some Bob's Burgers people. And I have no idea what I sound like. Cause I'm always a behind the scenes person, which I, I really like. Um, <laughs> being a behind the scenes person. And she was like, you guys listen to this guy's voice. He has the craziest <laughs> voice. And I was like, Kristen, you're, you're saying that about me. And yeah. Then like you voice s- a child on a, on a, on a cartoon. Like, yeah. <laughs> my guest today is the amazing Will Graham from A League of Their Own, the co-creator, co-showrunner, just premiered a few weeks ago on Prime Video. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So if you're not familiar, which you if you listen to this podcast, you should absolutely be familiar with A League of Their Own because I talk about it every week. Uh, but if you're not familiar, it is the story of the Rockford Peaches. It is a reimagining of the classic movie, uh, but it's it's gayer. 
so much gayer. Uh, and it it's really gets into, gayer. yeah, so much gayer. Uh, and it also has Black people. It gets into a lot of the racism of the era and realities of the time. Uh, whereas, you know, I think the movie is a wonderful sports movie, but the show is very much a show with amazing characters. So welcome. Thank you for watching the show. It's been a surreal couple of weeks for us. Yeah. How has it been? What's the reaction been like? How How's the reception? Um, the reaction has been incredible and really surreal. I mean, People are watching the show, which, you know, as somebody who makes things is, is already kind of surreal. You live with this thing for such a long time. And this show, especially Abby and I have been working on for four or five years and we've lived with these stories for a long time. And then you put it out and you're like, well, is this, this means a, t a lot to me. And it's been sort of life changing for me, but is it going to mean anything to anyone else? And the fact that it's connecting with people the way that it is and in the numbers that it is, um, is, is so moving to us and um and really interesting to the the reactions um you know i think in some ways what we're learning is like the show's a little bit of a mirror <laughs> yeah. people are experiencing really different things in it and and really different parts of it but um it's been incredible yeah i saw people are already making fan art like people have already started making portraits of the characters it's that easy to connect with them it's amazing it's um, crazy. There are um, hundreds. I want to like thank the people who are doing that because it's it's so much work. Someone posted uh, like what looks like an oil painting of Abby uh, that um, of Abby's character Carson that they were like this took sixteen hours. Yeah, and uh, and and there's just like now I think hundreds of pieces of fan art of fan fiction and people really entering and experiencing the mythology and the bigger world of this show and wondering about things. But it, honestly, it's also just the reaction from queer people. Yeah. Almost everyone who is on the creative team of this show is queer and getting these messages from people that say, you know, I watched this show with my mom. I'm going to cry. Uh, I watched this show with my mom. And uh, after episode three, I came out to her. Or, you know, yeah. I got my grandma to watch the show and she called me and apologized or, um, you know, I've never seen myself on screen. There's this one that was talking about Lupe, Roberto Calindres' character, and said they'd never seen the sort of fiery Latina stereotype and what it's like to live with that um, dealt with on screen the way that in her storyline about being called the Spanish striker, yeah. uh, that, that sort of racialization of her experience becomes part of her storyline. And the person wrote like, I think I need to like embrace my fire um, and yeah, stop running away it's from beautiful. it. I, I think it speaks to kind of the need we have for queer characters on screen. We don't get to see them. And when the, when it's done so well, like it is in this show, it's, it just reverberates. I, I personally, you know, I, Max, Max was my girl. I, I, I really liked her as kind of a know-it-all mm -hmm. <laughs> and just the way she was like, no, I know I'm good and I don't have to settle. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I really liked her and I was wondering how you chose A League of Their Own. How did you come to be the co-creator, co-showrunner? Had you always kind of wanted to work on a reimagining of this movie? How did it all, why this movie? Um, so there's a lot of different uh, answers to that. But I think the most simple one is um, this movie and what Penny Marshall and the cast did, you know, meant so much to me in different ways at different points in my life. But when I was a kid, you know, I was a little um, queer kid who knew that he was not right for the world in some way, but I didn't have any vocabulary for it. Um, and I was really emotional. Like, um, at my mom has a report card frame that was just like the first line of it is just like, Will cries all the time. And, uh, I just felt broken on some fundamental level when I was, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. And, um, my dad, I think trying to be like a good, um, dad and he, he is a great dad was like, well, there's an athlete in there somewhere. And like sports had been a powerful experience to me. So he encouraged slash made me play, um, seven years of little league baseball. I was on a team called the Chesapeake Bagel Bakery Bagels. Love it. Um, Love that name. 
I was a bagel. <laughs> um, and I was so bad. And like I said, I cried constantly. And one year they made me the second right fielder. They invented a position just so I, I guess like uh, I wouldn't ruin the game. <laughs> just to give you something to do. They're like, just stand way, yeah. way out in the fields. Like you got it. <laughs> Yeah, but it was so, um, I was like standing out there in the outfield and everyone else was just like a dot on the horizon. Like I was basically in, in what would be the bleachers. Yeah. Just like, I guess I'm part of this team. And uh, there was, you know, I think it was, part of it just had to do with feeling like I was undercover as a boy and the environment of being around all these boys who, for whom being a boy seemed so natural um, yeah. was, was really stressful. And there was something about the movie, which is one of my mom's favorite movies, that, that I think in the way that it spoke to a lot of people in subtext, um, spoke to me in subtext and sort of said, you know, look at these flawed, messy, hilarious characters who aren't supposed to be on the field, but they are on the field. Like, maybe it's okay to be there. So... It's just a movie that I always had a really deep connection with. And I'm really drawn, you know, if I wasn't doing this, I would want to be doing um, history. I'm really drawn to like old things and documents and letters. And um, and so I was shooting Mozart in the Jungle in Venice, Italy, uh, a few years ago. And I was in this hotel that was really loud and there was like gondoliers singing outside. And I had a lot of writing to do. So I put the movie on just sort of in the background, uh-huh. just to have like something familiar sounding playing. And then I started to watch it and just wonder about the stories underneath it. And in particular, the queer stories. Um, and I started to look into them. And then, you know, I think as people are discovering as they watch the show and then look into some of the real stories behind it, as soon as you start to look into it, you're like, oh, God, there's a huge story here that yeah. is unlike anything that we've ever heard and is so big and joyful and authentic. It's universal. It's it's about finding your team and becoming the version of yourself that you want to be in the way that every great sports movie is sort of universal, but it's also really authentically queer and centers yeah. people of color. And, you know, you just start to realize, like, there's this is a great American story, just like the movie, but it also is about us. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which most of them aren't. Yeah. And I mentioned to listeners last week, people have been angry people, homophobic people, racist people have been so angry that you have reimagined the movie into a show that celebrates uh, these queer, you know, people of color stories. And a lot of them, their first criticism is, this isn't realistic. They're, these people didn't exist back then. This woke stuff is all new. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. This is all based in real history, like you said. Uh, these, So much of this did happen. Uh, and I want to speak to the history of just how much it means to me being from Rockford. Uh, I loved the movie growing up probably 20 million times. In Rockford, it is an intense passion. We don't have much to be proud of. It is true. Uh, we have Michelle Williams from Destiny's Child and you have Michelle. the Rockford Peaches. Yeah. <laughs> She went to she went to the same church as me. Um, oh my god, I love Destiny's Child, but we can talk yeah, about that yeah. another time. But I'd argue, you know, the Rockford Peaches, just as if not, just hard to say in terms of importance. But I remember there was the anniversary of the film. They did a big screening when I was a kid. You know, we all dressed up like Rockford Peaches and went. It's something that's really celebrated, and. I think, you know, the movie was great, but I thought this really actually did get into how Rockford was at the time. The industry, the segregation, it felt so much more true. It felt like something I I was kind of more proud of as someone from Rockford. I'm so glad that you felt that way. And it actually like was really moving to me when you posted that and you noticed the little details. Um, so many little details. The Logleys on the main street. Logleys is like this little tiny grocery chain in Rockford. Uh, the Swedish like bank, every like all the Swedish anything in Rockford is very accurate. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the kind of, I think, biggest episode and and maybe most queer and joyful is when you feature The Office. Uh, which is based on an actual gay bar in Rockford, my first gay bar. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It was my first gay bar in Rockford. (laughs) Uh, That's not surprising since 
it for a long time was the only gay bar in Rockford. Now we have two. So if you're not familiar with Rockford, at the time when A League of Their Own takes place, it was this place of industry. We were called Screw City, as you see in the show. People are are active. The industry is alive. People have businesses. By the 80s, all of that had dried up. And when I grew up there, it was just kind of a desolate. It's basically like the Flint, Michigan of Illinois at this point. Mm-hmm. So it's not super joyful, but the office is this place of joy. And sort of the local lore that I have I always heard growing up was that what you show in the show is what it was. It was like a front face as an office, and then there was a speakeasy bar that was like hiding in the back, and that's how people would get in. And I saw so many comments that were just... That would never happen. How would there? How could there be a bar this gay back then? And I just want to be like, no, there really were bars that gay back then. Gay didn't just start happening. It's no, there's so much in what you just said that really bears on the experience of making the show. Um, one of those things, and and it's been life changing and incredibly joyful for me, is really digging into the queer stories at the time, because there's a way that sort of pre-Stonewall, I think as queer people living now, we imagine like everyone invented something really noble and then, you know, was electrocuted or murdered um, instead of getting the rewards that they should have gotten. Because those are the sort of exceptionalist stories that we uh, tend to tell. And they're often told through a a straight um, lens. And and part of the discovery of this show um, for me was... You know, when we first talked to Mabel Blair, who played in the original league and also played in other leagues at the time, and she came out at our Tribeca premiere um, in June at the age of 95, which was amazing. But then you also think she waited until she was 95. So that that says a lot. We asked her what it was like to to come to the league and find all these other people who were like her because she described the experience of sort of getting there and being like, oh, wait, hey, wait, are you? And sort of gradually forming a community. And she said, oh, it was a party. (laughs) Um, And this was years ago when we were first working on the show. And that was a moment, I think, for me and for Abby and for people working on the show where we were like, oh, that's that's the show. It's like, Wherever we are, whatever point we're at in history, things are always hard. It has never been easy to be queer. It's It still isn't. But we create community and we have the opportunity to create joy and create families, whether or not that's allowed by law. And there is something beautiful and heroic about that, even though, you know, these are funny characters and flawed characters and we didn't want to make them too noble or too... um, perfect, but like they got to do the thing that they wanted to do and they got to fall in love um, with the people that they wanted to fall in love with. And that is heroic. And I think it is heroic for queer people living now to do that too. And to the Rockford of it all, that has been one of like the most fun parts of the journey. So the show is really about Instead of being about the Rockford Peaches or about the AAG PBL, the show is really about this generation of uh, women, and some of them we would now um, describe as trans men or um, non-binary people, who uh, wanted to play ball. And there's a huge spectrum of stories in there, but it's all centered on Rockford, which, as you said, was the... um, sort of wartime hub of manufacturing in the Midwest. And it's this incredible cross-section of, it's part of the Great Migration, huge numbers of Black families, Black women are coming up from the South trying to get industrial jobs, which have just been opened up to women. At the same time, it's a city that has really deep roots and a tradition that was not always so friendly to them. And like in a lot of places, they were redlined out of neighborhoods. On the other hand, they have the Rockford Peaches, And on the other side of the city, people, women are being allowed to do this thing that they've never been allowed to do before. So the show really follows both sides of that. And it's about finding your team on a couple of different levels, right? Because there's the team that you play with, but there's also the team that gets you to the field, which in season one, that is really Max Shante Adams' character, uh, her story. Yeah. Did you spend time in Rockford to research? Oh, yeah. And Rockford was just so welcoming to us in every different way. And it was that interesting. I lived in Japan for um, two years. And weirdly, it was like a similar experience where on day one, everyone was like, welcome. This is so great. And then they sort of tell the same three or four stories. And then you just sort of stay there and stay in the conversation. 
And then the other stories um, started to come up. But we did, we spent, um, we did about three trips there. And then we did, we spent time just going through the archives in the library. And we spoke to as many people as we could talk to who lived there at the time. Um, Pat Reed uh, put together an incredible um, group of uh, Black women in their 80s and 90s who um, we talked to for hours just about where did you eat? What were your favorite restaurants? The Booker T. Washington um, uh, Center. Booker T. Washington Center. That That's very real. That's where I learned to type. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was really because the Black community in Rockford wasn't supported by um, the sort of city facilities and the city government in a lot of ways. It was a space that they created for themselves as that community um, got larger and larger. So, you know, Abby and I spent time there, but we also took all of our writers there and we formed a really deep relationship with the city. We went back and did an event there, um, uh, you know, just before the show came out. And it was pretty amazing where it was like, you watch the show with different audiences and everyone has a different reaction. The Rockford audience was like, every time like you showed the name of a store, oh, they yeah. were like, yeah. And every time oh, yeah. someone said Rockford, like they were like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was like, that's Emmanuel Lutheran Church right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it just it really got the details right. And uh, like you said, it's a city that was really diverse at its peak. Uh, it also was very segregated. There's this river that runs through that really kept it was it made it easy to keep black people on one side of town, Italian people, Irish people, <laughs> you know, it's that time. Uh, mm-hmm. And as things went on, you just see that so many resources left. It just kind of gets emptier and emptier. And, you know, it's it's anything that brings back that kind of joy and the, what you got to experience. You know, it is really just a friendly place with amazing stories where you just want to hang out with people. Uh, did you go to the Anderson Japanese Gardens? <laughs> you said you spent Yes, time. we did. Yeah. So We it, got the full tour from Mayor Tom. You, uh, wow. Wow. Who has been, he really rolled out the red carpet for us. And we're working with the city government and Maybella Blair and her organization, the International Women's Baseball Coalition, yeah. that is trying to bring back Byer Field where the peaches played and build an activity center and a museum that really embraces all of the stories. But it was amazing actually after our premiere, people watched the show and, um, uh, John Groh, who is the, like, one of, I think he's the activities director in the government, but that doesn't sound like a government title. So he's, uh, I'm probably getting it wrong. Maybe it's like Rockford Park District, like facilities. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they were doing a mural of the Rockford Peaches and they went back and added some depictions of Connie Morgan, Tony Stone, Mamie Johnson, who were players that weren't allowed to play in the AGBBL, but went on to play in the Negro Leagues, which is another huge story and part of where the show is headed that, you know, it it was amazing. Part of what's been amazing about this experience is seeing people retell their stories to themselves and start to allow different things into them. What I really love about the show is that there, there is fear, but there isn't a lot of shame. There isn't a lot of just kind of, I think a lot of queer shows get very caught up in sort of the self-hatred and the shame and the wanting to hide. But this just felt like a lot of women who wanted a place where they could be themselves, where they wanted to just be free of the shame. It's something that we talked a lot about that, and we still talk a lot about as we're working on season two, that Desta Tedris Ref, who's a EP on the show and sort of the other big person running it besides me and Abby, she always says, like, we're telling the show through a lens of joy but without looking away from the hard things. So I think that there's a way that we tell stories about history and historically marginalized communities like queer people and people of color, where in a way the obstacles can become the story. Like this isn't a story that is about homophobia or um, racism. This is a story about women. And again, some of them we would now call non-binary or or, uh, trans men who want something so badly that they're willing to change everything in their life and risk everything in order to get it. And they experience obstacles on the way. But telling the story through that lens of joy and in some way, the show sort of about the work of joy, like what you have to put into uh, your life and and the work you have to put in to get those moments of sort of ecstatically experiencing yourself, um, your authentic self in, in the world, which is 
it's something I, I think and I hope is resonating um, with people, but it's definitely changed my life and the way that I live. Up next, we're going to talk more about the comedy of the show. It's such a funny show. It obviously features some of today's best comedic talents. So we're going to talk about how he and co-creator Abby Jacobson, who you know from Broad City, you know Abby. We're going to talk about how they came up with the premise of taking a story from film into the TV space. TV Streaming May 23rd, only on BET Plus. Miss Pat is back. I'm excited. <laughs> and it's time for some grown-ass family time. I am a man. Oh, you a man? That's right. Then take my clothes off. You ain't pay for none of that on your back. Dad, you can't ignore your mother forever. I've tried. Would you like me to backhand you again? The Miss Pat Show. Streaming May 23rd on BET Plus. To sign up and learn more, visit BET.plus. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Will, now the showrunner of A League of Their Own, was also the founder of the Onion News Network. So I feel like his comedy background in this political tone really worked for a show like this. And even though it does get into these dark political realities, it also does face some of them in a funny way where there are moments where Max is kind of just like these crazy white people. And, you know, that is also realistic and funny. So I asked him how he first connected with co-creator Abby Jacobson. And then we're going to get into his childhood TV watching. So Abby and I knew each other a little bit in New York. We had a really good friend uh, in common, my best friend, Brooke Posh, who was Abby's executive at Comedy Central when they were doing Broad City. And, um, and, and so we sort of knew each other through that. And I just, uh, I mean, like the rest of the world, I loved Broad City. And in particular, I, am, I I just really admired. Abby has this way of merging absurdity and emotional vulnerability that I think is yeah. is really rare. So I, I first approached Sony, not really with a fleshed out pitch for the show, but more with a lot of research and said, well, this is the kind of thing that I'd want to do. And it wouldn't be a reboot of the movie. It'd be sort of a reimagining of the stories of this uh, generation. Um, and, you know, here are these interesting things I discovered. And would you um, be interested in doing that with every expectation that they would be like, no, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't. Instead, um, the executives that I talked to, Lauren Moffat and Glenn Edelman, who without whom we would not be here um, right now, uh, worked really hard to um, to get because obviously Sony was protective of the movie um, to to get people on board with that. And they came back and said, yes. And then I was like, oh, God, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, I sort of like had a moment where you're like faced with the enormity of what this movie means to people. And and um, and I knew from the start that this was a story that was bigger than my lived experience and bigger than any one person's lived experience and that it was going to have to be written by a team. And that mm -hmm. started with um, I had dinner with Abby uh, and we were catching up on stuff. And I told her that I was thinking about doing this and her eyes just sort of lit up. And she talked about playing softball and what the movie mean to her. And I started to tell her about the real stories underneath it. And we were both sort of like, huh. And then afterwards, because I'm a shy person who also never wants to make things awkward, probably to a fault, I was like, um, do you want to like email? No pressure. No, you're very busy. This was, she was still in the middle of doing Broad City, but like, would you ever be interested in doing this with me? And she said yes. And um, it led to a collaboration that has really been a beautiful experience. We're very different. We think very differently. Creative. I mean, we get along great and we become such good friends over the course of making the show. And um, but our brains work in different ways. And I think both of us have sort of said to each other, like, well, we would never have written the show or made the show this way on our own. Yeah. Um, it would have, it would have been 
different. And then I think as we went on, um, we have had other writers involved, um, you know, that sort of, we tried to extend that same space um, to them. So it's not a show. Sometimes you think like, oh, I'm the showrunner, like I'm the author of the show. So I'm, um, this is a show that has, that is personal to all of the writers that worked on it. There are pieces of all of them in there. And we really worked on it and wrote it as a team. And and it was just a beautiful experience. Yeah, I think that's reflected in just how every character feels like they're part of a collective. No one feels like a token or like they're just there to represent someone. Everyone feels like they have a full background and a deep story. It's It's amazingly well done. Uh, um, I also, when you said that, I just like felt my shoulders like relax a little bit. And I sort of felt like all of the writers on the show exhale because that's I mean, what we wanted the show to feel like was an authentic reflection of these stories with with one eye on the history and one eye on the world now and what people care about. And, and we wanted it to feel lived in um, every part of it instead of being this sort of polished, perfect period piece that's sort of a jewel box. Yeah. Um, So I'm so glad that you felt that way. I know a lot of people have asked about some of the language in the show. There's a lot of kind of modern lingo, few things, things that people kind of say today that people have been like, would they use, you know, language like this back then? This feels like you're using kind of modern anachronistic things and phrases to kind of relate to people today, which is something I think a lot of shows do. We saw that with Pose and Hollywood, uh, Lovecraft Country. I was curious about that choice. I have to say, it's sort of fascinating to me how much attention that's getting in the bigger landscape of the thing. Because the show is doing a lot of things um, that shows don't normally do. And, and it might be doing some of those things successfully and some of those things um, not successfully. I'll, I'll never know, uh, cause I'm too close to it. Um, but when it comes to the language, I think, so we had a conversation with Penny Marshall, uh, about, you know, within the first year of us starting to work on the show and figuring out what we wanted to do. And she said something to us that really struck us, which was, she said, when the team was just hanging out with themselves, I wanted to, I wanted people to forget that this was a period piece. And I kind of wanted to lower, the the wall between them in the past and just sort of have it sound like um, a group of friends, a group of a team hanging out. Um, so we took that idea, which came from Penny and extended it um, into the show. And I, I think we tried to do it in a way that, you know, no one's like, cool uh, <laughs> or awesome. But um, there's, again, we wanted the show to have a really lived in feel and we wanted people to experience it as immediate and and not distance themselves from it. So um, we uh, we sort of made the language a little more casual, um, uh, and and gave it a rhythm that is maybe a little more modern. But we also encouraged the cast to really improv yeah. and stay loose and not be so kind of perfect and, and clean in the way they were doing the scenes. And and I think it's part of a tradition of shows. And movies now, I mean, The Favorite does that so oh, yeah. beautifully, you know, even Bridgerton does that um, in some ways. Dickinson on Apple TV. Dickinson, yeah. Um, so I was actually worried before we put out the show, because we've been working on it for a while. I was like, oh, are people going to kind of like be like, well, they're just doing that because these other shows did it. But instead, people have really, maybe because it's it's a point, it sounds a little different than the movie. Um people, uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of questions about it, which um, which is interesting. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I think part of it is people are already wanting to go, it's so gay, this didn't exist then, and they didn't talk like that. And it's like, come on. You know, I mean, also baseball is not like a magic sport that can solve racism, but, you know, this yep. is TV. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what's important to me more than anything, and, and and what was important to Abby and the rest of our writers too, is that the show just talked to people exactly where they are. Yeah. Um, and and we wanted to be absolutely authentic to the history and always know where we were standing in relation to the history. But there also are moments in the show that that feel like a slice of life now. And part of the point of that is we're not all that different. 
And we're still facing a lot of the same challenges. Um, you know, we're living in a dark, strange time now where I don't know how you feel, but I'm like, I don't know what the world's going to be like yeah. next week, not Tomorrow. to mention yeah. <laughs> in six months. These women, these characters were living in the middle of World War II in a, one of the darkest times in our history and certainly an incredibly dark time for um, women and people of color and uh, queer people. And yet they found these opportunities to to find joy and to create opportunity and create a flash of light in the midst of that darkness and instability. And that's definitely something I take from the show into yeah. my life now as I face the world. Not like I'm trying to solve all the world's problems, but just when I look in my own yard around me at the things that, that are happening, um, it's really moved me. And yeah, we, we wanted people to be easily able to just step into these characters' um, shoes. And, and that's part of why we approach the language the way we did. Yeah. I know you mentioned that you let the cast improvise a lot. That makes a lot of sense with this cast, I feel like. that. <laughs> uh, how fun was that? What kind of... I'm really curious to know what someone like... When I saw Kate Berlant was in the show, I, I was so excited. I was like, I've always wanted her in a period thing like this. But also what what would she even be like? And the character that you created for her was so perfect with just being so neurotic and anxious yeah. all the time. She was just so funny. I'm sure she she did a lot with that. Yes. No, she, I mean, you said the character we created for her. And of course that's true on one level, but also Kate really stepped into that character and put it in her voice and brought herself to it. And a lot of her um, scenes and her dialogue are improvised and she, she personalized it, which is what we really wanted. It's, it's what the movie does so beautifully is that, um, you know, every member of the ensemble, you're not necessarily seeing their whole story, but you are planted in their shoes in some way and they feel really dynamic and specific. Um, Kate did that uh, with Shirley and there's so many moments in the show that came straight from her brain, um, which is strange and wonderful. And Benny Sola Igumelo, who plays Clance, um, oh, yeah who was also a writer on the show is another person who she's one of the most gifted improvisers that I have ever seen. There were moments on set. Um, a lot of people don't realize that she's British. Uh, and so she is improvising hilarious jokes and moments in an American accent um, for most of the show. And then, you know, Darcy, Abby, um, but everyone in, in their own way really stepped into that um, part of the show because uh, again, we weren't asking people to be perfect on the lines and uh, and and hit every single word. Word. We were really just asking them to step into those moments with each other and give us something that felt really real. Yeah, and they find this ensemble energy so quickly. It's it's really great to watch. Uh, I I love it. I'm obsessed. Uh, obviously, the movie was important to you. I'm curious, what TV shows did you grow up watching? What was you know what TV wise inspired you? Uh, well, okay. I don't know. I mean, what I watched when I was a kid, I was a big nerd. And, and like I said, I was sort of like, a, from the time I was like eight or nine, I felt really um, broken. And I was like, looking at the world and I was kind of like, I got to get out of here. Um, which is something I actually really relate to in Clance in Bemi's character is like, there's this sense, she has a wild imagination and she's like, I kind of don't know what to do with reality. So I'm just going to live up here yeah. and try to bring that out. Um, I loved, um, science fiction. Uh, I loved Star Trek, the next generation. I had a big old crush on Will Wheaton, uh, Wesley ah. Crusher, um, in, uh, in Star Trek. Um, but another show that really meant a lot to me along the way was My So-Called Life. Oh, yeah. Um, I was obsessed with My So-Called Life. That was, as a moody teenager, that show meant so much to me. <laughs> so much. And you watch it now and it is dated, but still the the sort of emotionality of it and the realism oh, yeah. of those characters. It's a little dated, but Jordan Catalano, I get it. I still get it to this day. I'm like... I Ugh. still get it. And he's still a problem for me. Same. Um, in, you know, he's an archetype uh, that um, we're all looking for, even though we shouldn't be. I'm we sorry, shouldn't my be. Husband. We should. No, we definitely shouldn't be. But the moment where he leans back 
she's like, what is he thinking about? And you just like see that he's high and he puts Visine in his eyes. I was like, oh God, that's, uh, that's me. I've and, been, I've been looking for that ever since, honestly. That's yeah. <laughs> no, totally. My last question. Uh, what are you watching right now? What What are your favorite shows you're watching? Uh, what do you, what do you put on during the week? Um, I right now, uh, so, so I have been, cause I, I made, um, League of Their Own and then we went right into making Daisy Jones and the Six. Right. So I just finished like one solid year of, um, being on set every day, uh, which is, um, wonderful. And then I also have like a terrifying number of things to catch up on. But right now, um, my husband and I are at the start of season three of For All Mankind. Oh yeah. Which I've really been enjoying. And we started watching it because of Jodie Balfour, um, who's Abby's fiance, and just wanted to see what she was up to. But it's an incredible show. Yeah, it is so good. I watched it over a weekend. I cried so much. I just cried. (laughs) Yeah, there was something so interesting about you sort of start and you think you know what the show is. And then you get to episode three or four and you're like, oh, wow, this is doing something that I've really never seen before. And then you get two more episodes in and you're like, oh, wow, this is really... Really, yeah. And I put it off because I thought like, oh, it's just come some kind of sad space show. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know. I, just, I thought it was like a space soap opera or something, like Armageddon-esque. I, but it's so much more than that. Yeah, no, it really is. And I think what Jody's doing in that show and the queer story that... Um, she's telling with that character uh, is is really moving, and the way she's she's performing it is incredible. Yeah, well, that that's if if you need something to watch this weekend, a league of their own, and for all mankind, that's a pair up right there. That's a that's a beautiful beautiful time of TV. You know what? Watch them together, merge them, and supercut <laughs> them into play them at the same new. time. Uh, actually, it lo- it syncs up. Uh, they did that on purpose. It's it's really uh, yeah. crazy. There's a secret message. <laughs> That's in just COVID. how in love Abby and her fiance are. They're able to just synchronize mm-hmm. their TV shows. Wasn't even intentional. Not even intentional. Will, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was super fun. TV Oh, I want to thank my guests, Joanna and Will, for joining me. That was such a wonderful conversation. I'm I'm so inspired. I want to write. I want to tell stories. Oh, gosh. And, you know, also follow Will on Twitter at Will W. Graham or tweet at the show if you want to get into it. They're doing events. They're doing so many things. That's at League on Prime on Twitter. I know I usually end the episode with homework. I have no homework for you this week. We talked about so many shows. There, There is a show at some in one of our recommendations that you have not watched. Okay, there were so many this week. And last week that with the long weekend, okay, I know you have shows to catch up on. Okay, the only thing I'm going to tell you to watch, 90 Day Fiance Happily Ever After, because it's, it's getting so wild. Why was Jenny yelling like that? Right? Why was Jenny yelling like that? Uh, Tweet at me about it. Let's figure out why Jenny was yelling like that. Because it terrified me. Thanks so much for listening. You know, we'll be back next week with another episode. Another episode. Another episode of TV I Say with Ashley Ray is an Earwolf production made by me, Ashley Ray Harris. It's engineered by Marina Pais and produced by Amelia Chapelo. And our original theme song is by Rafia. I'd like to thank my guest today. And if you loved what you heard, tell a friend, tell your bestie, you know, the, the Abby to your Alana. They're going to love it too. Just share, share the podcast. Tell everyone you know to listen. You know, you got friends who are always like, what TV should I watch? What are you watching? Tell them about TV I say. You can also follow me on social media at the Ashley Ray on Instagram and Twitter Or if you have TV-related requests, something you want us to talk about, a TV opinion you want to share, hit up at TVISAYPOD on Instagram and Twitter. And you know TV Club, we have merch. Go to podswag.com. We got weed accessories. We got amazingly cute t-shirts. Come on, justice for Made for Love? We're still fighting for it. We still believe. Go show your support and tell your friends, again, about the show. Make sure to rate and review. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And for special TV Club members, join our Patreon if you want me to write you episodic reviews or anything else. 
And you can find my full archive ad-free episodes of TV I Say over on Stitcher Premium. Use promo code TV I Say, all one word, for a one-month free trial at stitcher.com slash premium. For photos, show notes, transcripts, and more, go to earwolf.com. Streaming May 23rd only on BET Plus. Miss Pack is back. I'm excited. <laughs> and it's time for some grown ass family time. I am a man. Oh, you a man? That's right. Then take my clothes off. You ain't pay for none of that on your back. <laughs> you can't ignore your mother forever. I've tried. Would you like me to backhand you again? The Miss Pack Show. Streaming May 23rd on BET Plus. To sign up and learn more, visit BET.plus. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.